Here it is on page 185. You shall not steal. Uh, I don't know whether you've uh, seen any of these um, amazing computer games that uh, uh, there are these days. Um, Emily's got, Emily, my eldest daughter, that is, has got an amazing game called The Sims. Um, the Sims creates a, a neighborhood of families, different families, and you manage those families. You, you can build them a house, you can control their daily movements, um, you can send them out to work. You can uh, help them to apply for jobs and see whether they get them and so on. It's very like real life. Except that Emily's found a cheat. This um, software has um, at least one secret shortcut built into it. And she knows this shortcut. So she, all she needs to do is just press a few keys on the computer and hey presto, money appears in the bank account of the family she's managing. <laughs> and of course, Emily's family has now become fabulously rich. You should see the house that they've built. It looks like South Fork Ranch and um, as she's given up bothering to send the family out to work. They have all the money they need. Up to the point uh, when Emily found this cheat, I was fondly thinking this was a great piece of software which was teaching her about life. But I think I've changed my mind now. I think it's actually teaching her to be a thief. See, uh, what I want us to see sometimes is that thieves can turn up in some of the most unexpected places. For instance, there's the story of a, a Sunday school teacher who had to teach this commandment, you shall not steal. And she began by saying, now children, if someone was to sneak up to daddy and secretly put their hand in his pocket, take his wallet out and take all the money that he had in it, what would you call them? And a little child put up his hand and says, please miss, I'd call her mummy. before I get lynched for that. Um, <laughs> what I want us to see, actually, is that sometimes this uh, commandment, you shall not steal, is a lot more relevant to ordinary people who are not cat burglars and uh, bank robbers. Actually, it's uh, a very real issue for ordinary people. Perhaps the New Testament verse which uh, gets to the point more than any is uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. The love of money, it says, is a root of all kinds of evil. That's the point, you see. When you love money, then things go wrong. What I want to do, though, for a while, before we get down to the most fundamental attitudes of our hearts, is try to see what mainly the Old Testament sketches out for us um, uh, as the, the structure of a healthy society. What a healthy uh, attitude to property and things should look like. The Bible actually has an enormous amount to say about money 
in uh, general and how, ma how society should manage itself. We can't do any more than just uh, glimpse that, really. Most especially, the Old Testament laws, the shape of the Old Testament laws was designed to inculcate into people certain principles about property and money in the life of Israel. And the first principle is actually a very important one. People are more important than things. The laws of the uh, nations around ancient Israel prescribed the death penalty for a number of forms of theft. Very interesting that Israel didn't. Israel prescribed the death penalty for, for uh, three big categories of crime, for major sins against God, for major sins against the person, especially murder, and for major sins about the, against the structure of society, because all those would lead people to destruction. If people walk away from God, they are heading for destruction. If society falls apart, you can bet people will start dying. And of course, if we murder people, we are destroying life. Now, those things commanded the death penalty, but stealing significantly <coughs> didn't. The basic principle for dealing with crimes, uh, with theft in the Old Testament was restitution, that is, repayment. Simple ne negligence, for instance, um, required compensation. Exodus uh, chapter 21, you'll see um, most of the laws I'm going to refer to are in chapter 21, verse, verses 33 to 22, verse 15. Exodus chapter 21, verse 33, describes what to do if a person has dug a, a pit in the ground, not put uh, a cordon with nice stripy uh, um, ribbons around it, and an animal falls in. The owner of the animal is to be compensated for the loss of that animal, but nothing more. Theft, says that, that uh, section, requires double compensation, twice the value of the item that was stolen, perhaps because it's a double crime. First of all, the owner has lost the property, just as they did in the case of negligence. But secondly, the, the owner of that property has been the victim of, of intentional mal malice against them. So to... to uh, um, uh, to account for the that extra seriousness of the crime, double repayment was required. You'll be able to see that um, if you look at uh, Exodus 21, as I hope the pastoral groups will. Then, uh, in a certain case, if an animal was stolen and, and slaughtered, even double compensation was not <coughs> enough. If an ox um, um, was uh, slaughtered, then uh, the compensation was fivefold. If it was a sheep or a goat, then it was fourfold. Actually, quite why that's, that was so is not entirely clear, but I suspect it may be something to do with the, the breeding potential of that animal, which has been lost too. I mean, if you listen to farmers during the uh, foot and mouth epidemic recently, you will um, have heard them say that the loss to the farms of having the agriculture slaughtered, the, 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 the animals slaughtered, was, was far more than the simple value of those animals. I mean, just to give you one example that I know of, a herd of cattle that lived on the edge of Dartmoor that had to be slaughtered, had lived there for more than a century. 
and the herd had built into its collective memory wisdom about where best to graze at different times of year. It always turned up at the homestead at the right time of year. You can't replace that just by putting stock back on the land. Maybe it's something to do with that, that actually stealing and slaughtering someone's animal required a particularly high level of uh, compensation. But it is only compensation. It is only a calculation according to the loss that that person had. It's very interesting to compare that with our legal system, isn't it? The moment, for instance, we lock up an enormous number of people who, who commit quite petty crimes against uh, property. Also, as well, in our society, those crimes are always seen as a, as a crime against society as a whole. Those people go to a, a courtroom where the case is heard between them and the Queen, interestingly enough. But the uh, Old Testament kept it very local. The Old Testament said the problem was between that person and the person whom they'd hurt. And the only thing that society did over the top was to, to enforce a system where those two people came together and compensation was passed over. Very interesting, if you uh, study issues of law and order at the moment, you'll, you'll, uh, uh, you may have noticed that uh, um, British police force and now politicians are getting very interested in systems of restitution, where actually petty criminals are brought in touch with the person that they've hurt, and where they're made to, uh, to, to pay in some way for what they've done within the community, because uh, people are recognising that actually prison doesn't work in those circumstances. There's much lower re-offending rate when people start to realise that they have hurt real people. Seems to me these, uh, that, that new mood that there is associated with crime of that sort is very, very healthy. I suspect, actually, sometimes the vindictiveness that we have towards people who have only damaged property reflects an unhealthy uh, love of money and possessions <coughs> over and above a love of people. The Old Testament was very clear, actually, that crimes against property are far less important than crimes against the person. Another aspect of uh, the structure of uh, society, of Old Testament society uh, related to these issues, was that um, Old Testament uh, society had clear laws to limit extremes of wealth and poverty. Um, that becomes uh, especially obvious in the book of Deuteronomy, where we, uh, where, where we started, which is the, uh, the book that was written as a mature reflection on the law, just before the people entered the, the Promised Land. And it's, it's uh, significant, perhaps, that it's in Deuteronomy that laws controlling wealth and poverty are most prominent. If someone uh, get, got into debt, for instance, 
they could sell themselves into a form of slavery. It was not like uh, slavery that we think of today. It was a form of, of tied labour. But at the end of six years, all loans, all slavery agreements were cancelled. Every six years, families could start again, debt-free. Wouldn't that be great? Go back to their piece of land. It's also important that uh, uh, fundamental to uh, Old Testament society, every family had an inalienable piece of land. A piece of land that was passed down through the generations and always belonged to that family. It was their piece of wealth. It was, it was the, uh, uh, the bit of land on which they could live. It was possible to sell that land if the family got into severe difficulties. But again, a law was there, the law of Jubilee, which said that at the end of uh, 50 years, that land always reverted back to the family. In other words, if one person in his lifetime has made a complete mess of things and lost even their land, their children and their grandchildren shouldn't have to suffer. And because the vast majority of the land, therefore, was always owned by families, it set a limit on how rich people could get too. The later failure, actually, of Israel to follow these laws is one of the major themes of the Old Testament prophets. Just to take one example, Isaiah, for instance, in uh, chapter 5, verse 8, laments the greediness of property speculators. Woe to you, he says, who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The law should have prevented that, but it didn't because they didn't follow it. Or just to take one other example, the story of uh, Naboth's vineyard in, in 1 Kings 21. Um, I haven't written it up there for you. Um, it's one of the low points of the Old Testament story. The evil King Ahab took a uh, fancy to uh, a little plot of land owned by a, 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 an insignificant man named Naboth. And uh, the king, the powerful king, asked Naboth for it. And Naboth rightly refused, because this wasn't his land to give away in one sense, not even to sell, because it was his children's and his grandchildren's birthright. It was what kept them from poverty. Ahab sulked, and his wife uh, Jezebel took out a contract on Naboth's life. Naboth was murdered, and Ahab greedily took the land. And interestingly, of all the evil things that Ahab did, and he did many, it was this action that finally determined God, made God determined that his family would be judged. Not only had he acquiesced in the murder of this man, he had condemned a powerless family to poverty, and God would not allow that. 
God's fury is very terrible against those who use power to rob others of what little wealth and security they have. Now, once again, in, in this country, we're living in a time when the gap between rich and poor is growing. A significant proportion of people in, the, in this city are caught in a, in a real poverty trap, which, which can last from one generation to another. I, I wonder how uh, society would change, for instance, if um, no one could have a debt outstanding longer than six years before it was just cancelled especially if every new generation had an equal, a thoroughly equal chance to start afresh in life, given their own uh, modern equivalent of a bit of land to build their lives on. We have families who more or less are condemned from one generation to the next to poverty. I wonder what God thinks about that. Third issue that uh, is, uh, is very important that I want to um, mention is that a key issue in Old Testament and New Testament is fair access to work, not actually primarily to money. The whole point, you see, about owning the land was that the family could produce something. Or to take another example, there was a law in the Old Testament preventing um, landowners from being overzealous in their harvesting of the grain. The point was that poor people, people who at that point for whatever reason were landless, needed the freedom to come out and glean the grain from the land. Still they had to work, you see. Society was structured to give them some work to do so that they could uh, find food to eat. But it was uh, within a necessity to work. One of the um, moments when the Apostle Paul seems to be rather uncharacteristically ruthless is when he's talking about idle people. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10 says, If a man will not work he shall not eat. He knows, you see, that idleness degrades us. One of our responsibilities as a society is, uh, is undoubtedly to make sure people have access to the opportunity to work and then are encouraged to work. One thing we realised, I think, in the last decade was how desperately degraded people feel how demoralized they feel if all they have is handouts and no opportunity to work. And that, uh, when they do work, another very important issue in the Bible is, is a fair day's work, a pay for a fair day's work. In the New Testament, James, as we saw when Gwyneth uh, read, is absolutely scathing towards employers who abuse their workers. Listen, you rich people, he says, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. 
You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. We have a lot of discussion, don't we, at the moment about what's a fair wage. And I'm not going to presume to pronounce on the fireman. Actually, what I want to say is I'm not sure it's the biggest issue for us as a nation. I wonder, in fact, from God's perspective, whether far more importance should be attached to the question of wages paid to workers in developing countries for goods that we buy. It would be ridiculous to expect Chinese or Indonesian workers to be paid the same as British workers are. A fair rate of pay is a local issue related to the cost of living and to average wages in the region. But in some cases, there is a level of abuse of those people which is, which is scandalous. There are child workers. There are people working 70, 80 hours a week. There are women kept more or less as slaves. There are workers locked up at night in factories to prevent them escaping. People have shown that Nike, Adidas, Walmart, Ralph Lauren have all been associated with sweatshop labour. And we buy their goods. Now this, um, this book is an interesting read if you want it. Naomi Klein, no uh, logo. She plots, in fact, how we have become obsessed by uh, brands People, Western people have become manipulated by them, often, in fact, at the expense of people in developing countries who work as little more than slaves. I'm actually all for giving jobs to poorer countries. I think rightly handled it can bring cheaper products and also a much-needed bit of redistribution of wealth. But you know, some, some of the clothes that we're wearing actually may have been produced by people who are a little more than slaves. Have you thought about that? It is possible to find out as well the source of a significant proportion of our clothes at least, and especially the companies that have the worst record. But I wonder, do we care? James is... Frightening, isn't he? You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Yes, says James, you may not have pulled the trigger, but you've shortened someone's life. You have uh, uh, increased the mortality rate of their children. Suddenly theft has become far more sinister. I wonder what God will count against us. So the eighth commandment says you shall not steal, but though it does mean you shall not break into people's houses, it does mean you shall not uh, steal the paper clips from the office. It does mean you shall not work a short day and defraud your employer. It means far, far more than that. It means you shall seek to live in a way that is just and fair towards other people. 
Most fundamentally, it means you shall not love money. Because if you love money, and in fact, all sorts of other unsavory things will come into your life. And God hates that. How can we make a difference then? If those are the basic, um, that, that's the basic structure of a, of a healthy society as the Bible uh, sets it out. How can we uh, make a difference? Well, what I want to suggest to you, although um, we can and probably some of us should get involved in, in, in campaigning and being involved in those issues in a wider sphere, our primary responsible, responsibility as Christians is to be different ourselves as individuals and especially as God's new society, the church. To practice actually those, uh, those things amongst ourselves and especially to focus on the fundamental attitudes of our hearts that will either undermine us or help us to live well. First attitude that um, uh, I want us to, to think about, we'll let the overhead projector recover before we try it again, is contentment. Contentment. That's why, says the Bible, rich people are constantly striving after more and more money and, and trampling on others to get it. That's why uh, some who live with only a little are, 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 can be filled with anger and resentment when actually they have enough to live on. That's why burglars steal. That's why Enron executives fiddle the books. Because they're not content. Paul says in, um, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he goes on. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Notice it is those who want to get rich. They may be rich or poor, but the point is what lies in their heart. They love money. And if people love money, they will be tempted and fall into a trap which will plunge them into ruin and destruction, says Paul. The second issue after uh, uh, contentment is generosity. From contentment, from uh, 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 a sense in which we can be happy if we have food and clothes, or food and coverings as it says. I think it means clothes and, uh, and a house there. From that attitude comes generosity. Generosity towards uh, other people. The Old Testament repeatedly in its laws urged Israel not just to abide by the letter, but to be generous. 
Don't calculate in your heart, it says, if you're, if you're giving a loan to someone. Oh dear, it's only another year or so till the uh, sixth year when all debts are cancelled. Be generous to your brother. Paul reiterates that in, uh, in, in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 that you may want to look at in your pastoral groups. For instance, uh, uh, when uh, he's discussing giving to Christians in need in those uh, uh, chapters, he says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know the story of the, um, of the Christian who had a terrible nightmare. He dreamt that God had added up all the money that he'd given in the year and he asked him to live on just ten times that amount for the next year. Well, actually, the, the New Testament doesn't require a tithe. It doesn't require, actually, that we give a tenth of our income. Now, it says something much more challenging. It says, be generous. Some say that churches should never talk about money. I'm afraid the Bible says that money is a key issue. It says that actually our generosity to people is a gauge of our faith. No one should know what we give because then it would become a means for boasting. We shouldn't do it reluctantly or under compulsion because God wants it to be the outflow of a delightful trust in him that says, I know you have given me riches, God, and you will look after me, and out of the, the pleasure of that I give you. God loves a cheerful giver. But generosity, nonetheless, is very, very important. A miserly person, says the Bible, has a big question mark over the reality of their faith. Last night, uh, some of us went to the, uh, the launch of a, a charity, which has been set up by uh, Rita Carla in this church, um, to uh, build an orphanage in Uganda for children orphaned by AIDS. I remembered, as I was uh, sitting there, a friend of mine who's um, in the secular world of fundraising saying that uh, Christians actually are the backbone of all charitable giving in this country, not just Christian charities, but non-Christians too. And I uh, thought to myself, I wonder whether the Christians will be the backbone of this charity. Or whether in this case we will fail and not be generous. Now, uh, one of the great things about um, uh, uh, evangelical Christians, at least in this country, is that they are generous by and large, which is great. But we cannot rest on that. No, uh, the world needs to see an attitude of free, happy giving that says, all this is from you, God. 
So I give a significant amount away because it wasn't mine in the first place. It's in the end, you see, not to be generous is actually to rob God. Powerful little passage in uh, Malachi chapter 3. God says, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, says God. You are under a curse. The whole nation of you because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. See if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Now, Christians are not called to tithe. That's an Old Testament passage. And the New Testament doesn't reinforce the tithe. But the principle still stands. Now, if we are miserly with our money, we are actually being miserly towards God. God says, actually, that if we want to be his disciples, money is a minor issue. We need to give our whole selves. We need to give our life to find our life. What use is it if a man gains the whole world yet forfeits his very self, said Jesus. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Need to demolish that God money in your life to give yourself totally to the real God, he says. If we rob God. And sadly, that can be a symptom that we have actually withheld ourselves from God and will not find his forgiveness. You shall not steal, says the Old Testament. Ah, says the rest of the Bible. You shall not love money. Because love for money means hatred for God. And hatred for God is the greatest disaster that could happen to anyone. Let's pray. First of all, Lord, we want to pray for our country and our world. where some wallow in riches and others cry out in poverty. But now, Lord, we want to pray for ourselves. Pray for ourselves on whatever issue has touched us personally right now in a moment of silence.
You have been so generous to us, Lord. We pray that uh, you would help us to live lives that joyfully live in that generosity. Lives that reflect the bountiful God you are. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.